Father, we come to you in the name of your Son. We're constantly impressed by the fact that although this world seems to be moving very rapidly towards destruction, we know, Father, that you are here to bring life and hope and healing and health. You're the one who is the God of restoration, the God of deliverance. And Lord, we individually are in need of your touch every day. And Father, in turn, we want to be true reflectors of your grace to those that will be part of our lives each and every day, that they might see in us, Christ, the hope of glory. Lord, I pray that as we study the Word of God, that the truth of what you are saying to your people will be made real and clear to each of us individually. And to the degree to which we have something in this passage to understand for ourselves today and for, this, for the walk that will be before us in the week ahead, I pray that you will reveal that to us. We invite your Holy Spirit to be divinely powerfully present here this morning and bringing about his perfect will in each life. And Lord, throughout this complex this morning in every class, we ask that you will minister and in the service that you will bless the choir and the ensemble and all the uh, ministry of music as it takes place. And for those who are not with us this morning, Lord, bless those that are ill and those that are away. Grant your touch in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 20th chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 20, I'd like to read the first nine verses to begin with this morning. Deuteronomy 20, beginning at verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Now it shall come about that when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. And you shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. And who is the man who has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man begin to use its fruit. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and sa shall say to them, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. And it shall come about that when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of the armies at the head of the people. The promises and the instructions which are given to us, especially in the first four verses of this particular passage, are, are premised upon the legitimacy of the impending war. The war that they are to engage in has to be a war that God has authorized. And God, of course, does not authorize war just for the sake of war. He does it for a specific purpose. And as we understand from the uh, occupation of Canaan, which is going to be taking place as we move into the book of Joshua, that God has delivered to them a land that was promised to them 500 years before. 
and war had to be a part of this. And we've already talked about some of the details of that before. What's interesting in this particular passage is that we read that as they're prepared to go to war, the priest was to come and speak to the troops. In other words, there's a chaplaincy, if you will. And the priest was to come to the men and remind them, God is with you. Do not be faint-hearted. God will give the victory. God will give the victory. This was to be true regardless of whether they were facing horses and chariots and were greatly outnumbered by the enemy. Remember, Israel has just come out of 40 years in the wilderness. What does Israel know about chariots? What does Israel know about horses? They have none of that equipment. They have no training in the use of them. They, they were a slave people. They have learned warfare purely from doing it in the previous decade or so. And, and so they are not a highly trained, highly equipped professional army marching into the land of Canaan. And so it was obvious that if they were to win, it would be because God gave them the victory. I think it's very important as we look at a passage like this to understand that we're not just dealing with events which took place long ago involving Israel fighting some uh, heathen power. We learn from these passages truth that speaks to our hearts today because warfare, whether it be physical or be spiritual or be both, has the same basic foundations and same basic biblical directions. The physical enemies of Israel were virtually always the spiritual enemies of the living God. Therefore, I don't think it is over-spiritualization to parallel a passage like this with, with Ephesians chapter 6. We aren't going to turn to that passage this morning, but I trust that you understand that that is the passage that deals with spiritual warfare, where the scripture tells us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness in the spiritual realm. In the spirit realm, God's people can never defeat the enemy without God's help. The evil one is much too powerful for any human being. And for people to try to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the evil one in their own strength is a disaster. This was very clearly illustrated in the situation with Israel. We haven't gotten to uh, Joshua yet, but let me just jump ahead. When, when Israel was able to conquer the city of Jericho, you know the story. You probably, if you grew up in the Sunday school, you know the story from, from your young years that Joshua fit the battle, as the song says, and the walls came tumbling down. The, the victory at Jericho was a miracle of the Lord. And after winning that city, which was the most powerful city they would initially face in the conquest, there would be other greater cities later on, but for right on, it was a powerful city, and they had been sitting there contemplating it for a very long time. The plains of Moab are just across the southern end of the Jordan River within sight of the spot of Jericho, and certainly they could see the walls of that mighty city. At least it appeared mighty to them. It was no big city, just a few acres. But nevertheless, to them, it was a mighty city. Well, God gave them that by miracle. Well, as you move up the escarpment, now Jericho's down in the Jordan Valley. Uh, Jericho is 900 feet below sea level. Jericho is a wonderful place. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know how wonderful Jericho is. It, it's it's like, almost like a paradise with palms and fruit trees all around and citrus of all kinds. And one of the times when we were there in January, it was wonderful. 72 degrees 
We're at the Jerusalem. It was freezing and snowing. You know, it, it's 900 feet below sea level. <laughs> and and it's, it's a warm place. And the city of Jericho, from there, in order to get up to the highlands, you have to go up the escarpment. And as you reach the top of the escarpment, there was a little town called Ai. The little town of Ai was just that, a small town. It had walls around it, but it was only a fraction of the size of Jericho. And so after the miraculous victory at Jericho, the Israelites rather nonchalantly attacked the city of Ai. It was a weaker city. And the forces sent against the city of Ai greatly outnumbered the army of Ai. And yet, you know if you've read the early uh, portion of the book of Joshua, that there was sin in the midst of Israel. And because of that sin, they faced a humiliating defeat. Their army turned and ran in the face of a smaller army. And of course, they threw their faces, themselves on the faces wondering why God had not given them the victory. And of course, God had to point out there was sin in their midst. Without God's help, God's people have no hope of victory. With God's help, God's people have no chance of defeat. This is the truth of Scripture. You and I face overwhelming enemies. These enemies are delineated for us in, in, the, in the epistle of John. They're called the world, the flesh, and the devil. You and I live in the world, we dwell in the flesh, and we're assaulted by the evil one frequently. There isn't any way that we can defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil in our strength. That is why the scripture so profoundly teaches that we need to learn to be humble to begin with. Humility. Humility is absolutely essential to the Christian walk. God resists the proud, the scripture says. And I think that's why many who become exalted as leaders in Christendom have such great falls. Because the scripture says pride comes before a fall. And not only must we be humble, but we must be repentant. We must acknowledge our sin. As, as uh, David would say, my sin is ever before me. Is our sin always before us? Do we recognize that there's not a day that we walk that we are not uh, people who are subject to sin? And, and that is why we're given 1 John 1, 9, where it says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is an ongoing condition. We, we never achieve the place where we don't sin as long as we walk in this flesh. And, and therefore, we're in need of that cleansing. And we need to be recognizing that. In addition to humility and repentance, we need to learn obedience. And this is one of the great ta tragedies of the church today, is the failure to be obedient. It's the constant looking at the Word of God or not looking at the Word of God, but if one does look at the Word of God, of trying to say, but that isn't what it really means. What it really means is this, and, and then taking the world in which we live and molding the Scripture to, face, to, to, to fit the standard of our world today, which is pluralistic, which is, quote, open-minded, <laughs> so open-minded that you can't tell the truth without, without being called a bigot. Obedience. Obedience is one of the great failings of the church today. Lack of commitment. We live in a world where nobody wants to be committed. They don't want to say, well, well one month from now I will be faithful in this thing. No, they don't want to do that because they want to be free to do whatever they feel like. The will of the wisp, you know, kind of attitude. But that's not of God. God requires us to be committed. Committed to serve. 
and be willing to put our lives on the line for, for something in the future that He has called us to do. There's much more emphasis today on short-term missions, maybe then even long-term. And there's nothing wrong with short-term missions. I think they have a very good role. But in some cases, I think it's a cop-out for those who should be committed to giving their lives to a particular area of service, but, oh, they just want to try it out. It's kind of like people who want to live together uh, before they get married to find out if they're going to be, quote, compatible, and then if they are, they'll get married. Yeah, right. If in humility, repentance, and obedience that we recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, and we, as the Scripture says in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God, why? So that we can be strong in the Lord, the Scripture tells us, and in the strength of His might. In Proverbs 21, we read this, Victory belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us individually. It doesn't belong to us corporately. It doesn't belong to the church as an entity in and of itself. Victory belongs to the Lord. It's given to us individually, corporately, and the church by God, and only by God. In Zephaniah 3, we read, The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Can you imagine God rejo rejoicing over you or me? Often I think we're up there and he's looking at us and saying, Oh, brother. <laughs> blew it again. But, but you know, we may blow it. We may blow it every day. But if we come to him and say, Lord, I acknowledge my sin, would you cleanse me? He exalts over us because we're repentant. We're displaying humility and we want to be obedient to the word of God. This is crucial to an effective walk in the Lord. There is no force in the universe that can seriously challenge God, let alone defeat him. Now, we, we, we become, if we watch too many movies, we become convinced of the idea that God's here and the devil's here and there's a mighty war going on and it's really kind of, we'll have to wait and see who wins. Uh-uh. <laughs> I mean, it's no contest. Satan's power is there only because God has allowed it and God has allowed it for the trying of his church that we might become spotless, the Lamb of God. God was with Israel and when God was with Israel, no enemy stood a chance no matter how great was their military force. Later on, we're, we're going to be studying if, we, if Lord tarries and we get there. In the book of Judges, it talks about a battle that was fought between Israel and the Canaanites. And God had sent a message through a prophetess by the name of Deborah. And Deborah instructed a leader in Israel by the name of Barak. And he was supposed to lead Israel into battle against the Canaanites. But he looked at the Canaanites and he said, they have 900 iron chariots. Would you go with me? Talking to Deborah, you know. <laughs> and she says, I will go with you, but you will not receive credit for the victory. Why was Israel afraid? 900 iron chariots. They didn't have chariots. What happened in the battle? All those chariots got bogged down in the mud. It's sort of like when the when the Egyptians chased Israel into the parted Red Sea, what happened? The wheels came off their chariots. How'd that happen? Back at the chariot shop back there, a lot of people forgot to tighten the lug nuts. I don't think so. God took the wheels off. God bogged down the chariots. God gave the victory. 
We sing the song, Jesus giveth us the victory. Well, we used to sing it anyway. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Was it true for Israel? It was true for Israel as it is true for us. All of these wars that Israel fought were at their root spiritual battles. They were not at their root physical battles. Oh sure, soldiers went out, and as we're going to be looking a little further in the passage, soldiers died on both sides, but it was still a spiritual war. It was still a spiritual war. And you and I daily may not go out and do actual literal battle with somebody in the streets, I hope, but there is just as real a spiritual warfare going on. And it is just as horrendous as it ever was for Israel, for us. And the source of the victory is the same for us as it was for Israel. If we are on the Lord's side, we will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your right side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not approach you, Psalm 91. In, in this passage in Deuteronomy, in verses 5 through 9 of the passage, we discover that victories, even victories, were not won without losses. We also discover that God cares for every individual combatant. Three times in this passage, we read the phrase, lest he die in battle, lest he die in battle. God cared for the individual Israelite soldier. We have a tendency when we read the Old Testament to kind of lump all the Israelites together and think that God dealt with Israel just as a nation. He did not. He dealt with them individually just as He does not deal with us as a church only, but with us as individuals. It's no different. And God cared about these individuals. And even though they were not to fear the enemy, no matter how strong the enemy might appear, because the Lord would fight for Israel, it was very likely that in the battle, some Israelite soldiers would die. One of the things I point out in history is that even though many nations in battle will have victory and there will be much rejoicing over the victory, there will be individual soldiers who will not taste that victory because they're dead on the battlefield. You know, it doesn't matter how small or how large a war is. If you're one of those who's killed in battle, it's all over for you. It could be the greatest battle ever fought as far as you're concerned, because you're gone from this planet. And so really, whether you're talking about the Spanish-American War with just a few hundred dying in the battlefield, or World War II with hundreds of thousands dying in the battlefield from the United States, for, for the few who died, it was all over, so it didn't really matter if it was a big war or a little war. There would be some Israelite soldiers who would die. Now you may remember when we studied back in Numbers chapter 31 that when Israel fought the uh, Moabites and the, and the Midianites, that they counted up their soldiers after the whole thing was over and they found not a single one was missing. And you'll notice how they, re you remember how they responded? Well, they were dumbfounded. They rejoiced to the Lord because they knew you don't go to battle and come back with all your men normally. Not even Israel. And so that was an unusual thing. God can give victory with no losses, but that is not how it normally happens. And God alone knows why that's true. God can give us victory with no losses, but He doesn't choose to do that. We'll find out someday when he plays the great cosmic video. You know, that's what I think we'll spend the first few million years doing, watching the whole replay, you know, of creation all the way on. At least I hope so. 
<coughs> maybe I won't care by then, I don't know, but at this point it sounds like a great thing to do. Most of you are familiar with, and it was just recently brought to light again in the newest Christianity Today, you may remember the five men who died on Palm Beach in, on the Curarai River in Ecuador who were taking the word, were the word of God, or trying to open the door at least, to what were called the Auca Indians, and which are called by themselves the Warani Indians. And how that tragedy struck the world, it was just a shock to the world. Five young men in the prime of their life, trained to do what God had called them to do, speared to death by a barbarous, naked, savage tribe. How can God let that happen? And many of us don't, that tends to overshadow the fact that just about eight years before, the same thing happened in Bolivia, where five young men were killed by a primitive tribe trying to take the message of God in. And we look at that and we say, what a horrible loss. Victories are only won, usually with losses. And today, Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint, who was the pilot of that expedition, is living amongst the Waranis again. And there are hundreds of these barbarian people who know Jesus Christ. Hundreds have been won. The victory is God's, but the cost was five young men. Victories are won usually with losses. And what is really fascinating about this account now is that the same Warani tribe, one of the ways by which they earn a little bit of income, because obviously being a, a uh, jungle tribe, just living as uh, basically hunter-gatherer people, they've had little source of income through their thousands of years of existence. Uh, one of the ways by which they earn a little income today is to host groups of outsiders who want to come in and witness what it's like to live in a primitive tribe. And so he was in this newest article telling about, I think it was 35 young people, mostly from American universities, being taken in 14 hours by foot and canoe into the tribe and sitting around and watching this tribe and, and discovering that uh, many of the members of this tribe were killers and listening to the women of the tribe tell how their husbands or their fathers and their brothers were speared to death by others that are standing in that same very group and all of a sudden these young people are looking around, whoops, <laughs> we're sitting in a circle and a lot of these guys are murderers. <laughs> I don't feel safe, so safe about that. And then Steve Saint gets up and puts his arm around one of them and says, yes, and this man killed my father. Blows the mind of these young people. And then one of the women starts to give a testimony, which Steve translates. And these young people hear the message of, gospel, of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming around full circle. The five died on Palm Beach to give the witness to these people, and they died without any of them knowing Christ, but that opened the door. And now here are these primitive Warani people 40 years later witnessing to young people from American colleges and universities. Hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, why are you different now? What has happened? And suddenly discovering the difference is Jesus Christ. And he points out in the article that many just thought Christianity was just another philosophy, another position, and suddenly they're discovering it's a life-changing belief. And one of the persons in the group actually, I mean, this, this Warani woman kind of gave a little message and, and then called for them to respond to it. And one of them actually did right on the spot. And she was delighted. Who knows what God will do in the other lives. But that victory came with a cost. Now, God does exempt some from certain phases of the battle. We're not all prepared to do battle exactly the same as one another. 
We are prepared differently. We're gifted differently. We have different aspects of the battle to take part in. But what's interesting about this is, in the passage we read here, that God exempted some from fighting for various reasons. Now, they didn't mean they were permanently exempted, but they were exempted for the moment. One of the reasons was to increase the effectiveness of the army. Sometimes a mission team needs to put somebody off the team for a while to make the team more effective because they're in the midst is one who doesn't believe or who is, whose mind is distracted by other things. The battle might not seem very important to those who are distracted by affairs back at home. Those who have, as the passage says, built a new house but have not, quote, dedicated it, which can also be translated lived in it yet. They haven't lived in it yet, so they're thinking about their new house they built, and they don't want to die, so they're going to back up, you know. Don't want to be out there in the hot heat of battle because I don't want to die. I'm living my new house yet. Or I've planted a vineyard, and I haven't tasted the fruit. I've done all this work, put in all these plants, haven't been able to taste the fruit of it yet. Well, you know, that's quite an exemption because the Scripture tells us in Leviticus that when you plant a vineyard, you can't eat of the fruit for five years. Now, one of the reasons is, of course, you don't get much fruit for the first couple of years. But the, the fourth year, you're supposed to dedicate the entire crop to the Lord. And then the fifth year, you can partake, partake of it. So, you know, if you just planted a vineyard, that gives you a five-year exemption. <laughs> and then uh, those who, who've got a fiancé and haven't married one yet. Well, let me read you what the Scripture says about that. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5 says, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. God knows how important that first year is. For many of us, we may not have, pay attention, have paid attention to that too well, and our first year may have been a little bit rocky, because we did too many things. But here we have God looking out for these individuals. I think also God was trying to underscore the fact that holy war is not total war. You don't just pour everything in it and just hope that you get something out of it and let costs be what they will be. They were to fight to destroy the Canaanites so that they might conquer the land. However, they were to occupy the land. They were to settle a land. They were to establish a domestic society. And if you wipe out the flower of the youth, if you kill off all the providers, what are you going to do? There have been situations in history where countries have been so tragically destroyed in war that there was almost nobody left to rebuild the country. Paraguay is an example. In the mid-1930s, Paraguay fought a war and only one-tenth of the male population was left when the war was over. And it took a very long time for that country to restore a balanced population. And had anybody really desired to just simply take over Paraguay, they could have done it. There couldn't have been anybody left to resist. I think also, though, that God is demonstrating a care for those that have not yet experienced all the joys of life. Now, I'm not saying that God is going to make sure everybody experiences all the joys of life, but because there are greater joys for those of us who are believers than any of the joys of life might be, but, but God does care. He's expressing a care for each individual and wanting them to have the best opportunities at least to become a full-fledged member of the society and, and to grow up and mature and experience the good things of life. But I think maybe possibly above all is the fact that God wanted some to be exempted for the morale of the army as a whole. There's nothing more disturbing to an army than to be in battle and suddenly discover that many of your men are fleeing from the battle line, running to the rear. 
If you're familiar at all with the first Battle of Bull Run, Manassas Junction in the Civil War, you know that the Union had every reason to win because they had a larger army. Of course, both armies were green, had not really been in battle before. But all it took was a few to break and run. When they broke and ran, ran others looked and said, whoops, things must not be going as well as we thought. <laughs> and, and so they will turn and run. And pretty soon it becomes a rout, and it turned out to be an absolute horrible rout. Alexander the Great, when he fought against the Persian king Darius III, at one point in, in, in one of the battles, he, out, he was outnumbered. Alexander was outnumbered five to one by the enemy. And the enemy was winning. But Alexander managed to, to uh, frighten the, the king, Darius. And Darius fled. And his commanders looked around and said, whoops, the emperor is fleeing. Things must not be going as well as we think they're going. And they fled too. And the Persian army was crushed by a Greek army one-fifth the size of their army. So there's nothing more demoralizing for an army than to see members of its own ranks fleeing from the battle, throwing their weapons as running panicked. The Israelite army was a holy army, just as the church is to be a holy army. And those that were faint-hearted were not just demonstrating a character trait, they were, in the case of Israel, demonstrating lack of faith in God. So their cowardice had a spiritual root. The root was they didn't believe God. They didn't believe He was giving them the victory. Faith in God is the source of our victory. Faithlessness brings defeat. And with defeat comes hopelessness. And there's no greater tragedy in life than to be totally hopeless. One of the interesting little insights we get in this passage uh, in verse 9 is that the Israelite army was obviously still a non-professional army because we read that the tribal officers were supposed to appoint commanders, which meant there, there weren't any ranks already established and you know, a whole hierarchy of military leadership. Well, you see, who shall we pick here? I see you make a good general, you make a good captain, you make a good lieutenant, you know, picking guys out to, to lead the army which helps us to understand that uh, probably they weren't quite battle-hardened veterans either for the most part. Oh, they had done some fighting, but uh, they had to be selected by the political leaders, if you will, uh, of the tribe as to who would lead the army. And that would continue to be the case throughout not only the days we're talking about now, but throughout the days of Joshua, throughout the judges, and, and all the way up really till the days of David. It's not till the days of David we start reading about people and so forth that imply actual fixed ranks and individuals who held certain ranks, uh, you know, David's mighty men and so forth, and sort of an army called up by God at a moment's, not a, maybe not exactly a moment's notice, but a short notice to fulfill a duty, and it didn't need to be a professional army because God would give them the victory. I mean, we all know about Gideon, right? He had 32,000 men, and God said, well, that's way too many. Even though the enemy outnumber you five to one, you still have too many men. And so God cuts it down ultimately to 300 men. Now, that's absurd. I mean, I don't care if they're green berets. Um, 300 men are, are not going to be effective against a 150,000-man army, more or less equally equipped. But God just chased them off, gave them the victory. Well, let's read on in this passage in Deuteronomy 20, beginning at verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And it shall come about, if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. 
When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and all the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which, is, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. You know, whatever we think about a passage like that, and we think, well, that dealt with Israel a long time ago. It just is a, a particular command to deal with a particular form of warfare. I mean, there is a powerful truth there. The overall truth you get out of that passage, I think, or should get out of that passage, is that the relationship a person has with God is so important that whole nations can be wiped out to guarantee it. And we live in such a piddling world of attitude today. A world in which we're so soft on crime and all these kinds of things that are such a huge movement in America against capital punishment, other kinds of things, because people have this idea that giving somebody a few more hours of life is the most important thing in the world. Not knowing that where their relationship with God is important, whether they have another minute of life or if they have a hundred years of life. Because life is so meaningless compared to eternity, because it's over in a moment. As a practical matter and as a demonstration of mercy, the Israelites were to offer terms to any city that they were ordered to attack by God before they attacked it. Now this again demonstrates the character of God. The Israelites were to demonstrate the character of God. Mercy. God has ordered us to take this city. We're sending in a, a messenger of peace. We offer peace to you. You accept peace from us and, and there will be no siege and there will be no dying. But if you refuse and, and you choose to fight, you'll pay the consequences. If a city agrees to surrender without battle, there's a saving of life, there's a saving of time, there's a saving of money, manpower. But the terms of surrender were to be that they would become vassals of Israel. They would serve Israel. Now we have to understand that behind that is the fact that if they served a faithful Israel, faithful Israel will bring the word of truth to them. And that gives them opportunity to come to know the truth. They were peoples locked in pagan, heed, uh, heathen, hedonism. And, and, a people, and peoples totally lost with no hope. And to serve Israel, even as slaves, was far better than living in, in their way, quote, free. Because in freedom, they were actually enchained. But if a city resisted, it was to be besieged. And in verse 13, we're told, the victory over the city will come from God. The victory over the city would not come because of the strength of the army, the tenacity of the army, the brilliance of the commanders. The victory will come because God would give the victory. And tragedy, uh, tragic as it may seem, we're told in this passage that if they captured a city which resisted, that all the adult males were to be executed. That means everybody from 12 years and old up. They were to preserve, however, the women and the children, and everything within the city would become the spoils of war for Israel. There was one exception, however, and those were the cities that were inside the boundaries of Israel. 
the promised land, inside the boundaries of what was to be their land. Because God had said you're not to leave any of them within the land. And so such a city was not to be offered peace. Such a city was to be laid siege and wiped out every breathing thing, including the animals, was to be slain. And what is interesting is, again, the reason is repeated in this passage. These people, if allowed to remain, would be a spiritual cancer in the midst of Israel. And Israel would be tempted and would yield to following after their gods. And so God said they are not to be allowed to remain in the midst because, in verse 18, in order that they may not teach you to do according to their detestable things which they have done to their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. In our society, where it's supposed to be live and let live, this is a very bigoted concept. In fact, the Christian church in, in a generic way, especially in its liberal elements, has gotten away from the passage, passages in Scripture which teach us that there is no other way under heaven whereby we must be saved than faith in Jesus Christ. And many think they're being very magnanimous and very modern by saying, well, you know, as long as you're faithful to whatever you believe, it's going to be okay. That's the greatest lie from the pit of hell, and it's destroying more people every day in this country than probably any other lie, because it's so believable. And to accept it, you, you just fit into our society. You don't make any waves. You're looked upon as a modern, cultured American. You go back to the 19th century and you discover the roots of this in messages like those given by Henry Ward Beecher, whose father, Lyman Beecher, was a great evangelist, but Henry, he didn't want to uh, rock the boat here. And so he started taking the blood out of the message of Jesus Christ because blood's offensive to a cultured society. We don't want to talk about the blood of Jesus Christ, you know. And, and as a result, you end up with a social gospel where you just kind of rub each other's back and say, now, 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 it's going to be okay here. Just, you know, hang in there. It's going to be all right. Without teaching the truth that the soul that doesn't repent perishes, that the person who does not turn to full faith in Jesus Christ faces eternal darkness. I mean, it's such a horrible teaching. And that's why Jesus was so adamant about the Pharisees, because what they said was so believable but so wrong. And it was totally couched within the framework of the, of the law of Moses, but so different from the law of Moses, so vile. And so these people whose vile practices would seduce Israel were to be wiped out. Major surgery. Then as a practical matter, and we'll wind it up with this this morning in the last two verses, we read that when you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them, for you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down, for is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down, and you may construct your siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. At first, when you first read the first few lines, it almost sounds like an environmentalist statement, you know? <laughs> You aren't going to cut down the trees. And then it says, ah, but you can cut down the trees as long as they're not fruit trees. See, God is very practical. 
it's very common for a besieging army throughout history to cut down the trees to use the wood for siege works against the city. Case in point, Jerusalem, year 70. The Jews had rebelled against Rome and they had fought against Rome for four years. The Roman army finally clamped in on the city, surrounded the city. In order to build siege works to take the city, they leveled every tree within a 12-mile radius of the city of Jerusalem to use the wood to capture the city. That is why today when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, you will not pray under the very olive trees Jesus prayed under. Oh, you will pray under the regenerated trees because olive roots regenerate themselves. You can cut the tree down, it will grow up again. So you can pray under the trees whose roots were there in Jesus' day, but the tree itself is not because the Romans chopped them all down. There was no Garden of Gethsemane when the Romans were done. So God is telling Israel, don't do that. Because I'm giving you this city, and what good is the city if you cut down all the fruit trees? Look how long it takes a fruit tree to mature. Don't be dumb. Cut down the other trees that don't bear fruit and leave the fruit trees stand because you will use them. In other words, when you're laying siege to a city, depend on me. Don't depend on your concepts of how you must do this, this massive work in order to capture the city. Rest in the Lord. There was an article in yesterday's paper on the religion page. I only read a little part of it because I, the title was very disturbing to me. And it was something to the point that God is a severe taskmaster or something like that. It's about somebody who, who pastors two small churches and teaches in a Christian school, has gone from 7 in the morning till 10 at night. And of course the implication is God makes him do all this. And so God is a severe taskmaster. I don't know whatever happened to the passage that says where Jesus said, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Or my yoke is easy and my burden is light, I guess. <laughs> Same diff. <laughs> I think sometimes we feel God is a severe taskmaster because we have assumed that He wants us to do things He has not called upon us to do. We bury ourselves and then we blame Him. It's the work that God's doing. He does the work. We're to be the tools. We're, we're to be the channel. But He does the work. He gives the victory. The Israelites didn't have to think up some convoluted plan to take every city and to fight every battle and you do this and you do that. God will give the victory. They were faithful to fight faithful to follow their leaders, faithful to trust Him, but the victory was theirs through Him. And so it is for us today. Next week we're going to move ahead to the 27th chapter of Deuteronomy and into the last days of the life of Moses. And so we'll be moving through the last chapters of Deuteronomy looking at Moses.